Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm your host, Aaron White, and excited to be bringing you new reviews for the week. If you're interested in following me and interacting on social channels, the best place to do that is on Twitter. You can find me at Film. There are also lots of other social links in the notes below. This episode, places you can find me, I am always down to chat. Here on FF Plus, the format is pretty straightforward. I'll start by talking about what I liked about each movie, because we're big fans of positivity here at Feelin' Film. Then I'll mention anything that I didn't like before eventually giving you a recommendation on whether I think the film is worth your time and money. That's it. Simple, short, and spoiler-free. Now the first of two films that we have to talk about this week is called The House. This stars the voice talent of Elena Bonham Carter, Matthew Good, and Mia Goth, among others. It is directed by Emma DeSwife and Mark James Rolls, Nikki Lindroth von Barr, and Paloma Baiza. What's it about? It is an eccentric and dark comedy anthology about a house and the three surreal tales of the individuals who made it their home. Now, the key thing to know here is that this is an animated anthology. So we have three stories that take place of various periods of time, and they are all revolving around this same spooky, mysterious house. So I'm actually going to do this review a little bit differently. I'm going to read you a little bit about each story, tell you what I thought about it, both the good and the bad, and then move on from there. The first story is the one directed by Mark James Rolls and Emma DeSwife. It's set in the 1800s. It focuses on an impoverished character named Raymond, who meets a mysterious benefactor, that promises to restore both him and his family to their former status. The family soon learns that wants and desires may not always lead where you expect. These are all stop-motion animation, and that is always one of my favorite things to see. This one in particular has lots of fuzz. Glorious, glorious fuzz. I love the fuzzy-bodied characters and their fuzzy hair and the use of fuzz as tree bark and fuzzy chess pieces and the fuzz that they use for the flames in the fireplace, which I guess would technically be hot fuzz. But um, give me all the fuzz, honestly. I really, really like animation style that utilizes, it's like cotton balls, essentially, that have been ripped apart. And it just, they use it in such cool ways in this particular story. This is essentially about a character who makes a deal with the devil, and you know how that typically goes. It shows us that the human element of being mesmerized by this beautiful, gifted thing can make you blind to what's happening around you because you're so enamored with uh, shiny, awesome stuff in your increase in wealth or status or whatever it may be, sometimes that didn't even really cost you anything. And so you get to the point where you don't really care or even ask where things come from so long as you're able to keep them. And that results in this family going down a very dark and spooky path and things happen. This haunted house version of the house is set out in the woods in the darkness. It's kind of a house that operates a little bit like The Shining at times. And the vibe of this particular story gave me an A24 horror movie feel. It's a slow burn, but it's nothing new from a narrative perspective. It's kind of weird and strange, but it's the most straightforward, I think, of all three of them. I connected with it the best. I didn't particularly love it. I thought it was okay and fine, but it was certainly 
more normal than the rest of them, (laughs) which is saying a lot, I think. The second story is directed by Nikki Lindroth von Barr. It's the one set in present day, and it has a harassed property developer who is trying to make a quick sale from a renovation. However, some eerie, unexpected guests have other plans and become the catalyst to a more personal transformation. The property developer is a talking rat, so he moved from humans in the first story to a rat in the second. The house here is now in the middle of a bustling city block. It's a much more modern and realistic art style. It's crisp animation. The fuzz is gone, sadly, and that really sucked for me. No, it looks good. The developer has to deal with an infestation of sorts. He is hosting a party. He's struggling getting food and groceries delivered that he needs in order to woo these potential buyers of the house. I didn't find it particularly interesting. Ultimately, a couple comes into the house and things the house again like it does in the first one it's kind of freaky things are happening there's a couple of tie-ins i would say to the first story in indirect ways and this elderly couple just won't leave and he's like hey buy the house or get out but they are asking a lot of questions as if they know something about this house it's very important to them and it's a really strange narrative overall it has a very trippy musical dance number with bugs in the middle of it. It's it's out there. It's really out there. And didn't care for it at all, to be honest. Was mostly bored throughout it and was ready to get on to the next one. Each of these, by the way, is about 30 minutes long. So you're talking to about an hour and a half for the entire film with, you know, split evenly amongst the three different stories. Third story was directed by Paloma Baiza. It's set in the near future. The house survives a hugely changed landscape. We meet Rosa, a young landlady determined to stay in her beloved crumbling house and restore it to its former glory. But Rosa's unrealistic vision has blinded her to the inevitable change that is coming and to what matters most. In this one, the main character Rosa is a cat, so we went human, rat, cat. There are other cats as well that live in the house. They are tenants and they are unable to pay her rent with money, which is what she needs in order to renovate, and that frustrates her. One of the tenant pays her in, like, psychic crystals and advice, and the other one gives her some of the fish that he normally eats and uses for food. It's weird. Again, it's very weird. (laughs) The animation style and coloring of this one is really nice. It's definitely more futuristic looking, in a sense. It's got a lot of watercolors to the palette, and it almost looks like anime in stop-motion style mixed together. I dug this animation quite a bit. The story goes on, and a visitor arrives, and it kind of takes this direction into some strange spiritualism stuff and an experience for her that I think is supposed to teach her about how she's viewing the house and what's important to her, etc. I didn't dig it. I was bored to tears and honestly this one was the worst it got worse for me as it went along and that's a terrible feeling i just wanted it to be over i hate having to tell you that but that's how i felt it's likely that there are probably some bigger connective themes across these three stories that viewers are supposed to draw a meaningful message from i didn't get it so i guess that could be on me that could be on the film 
It's hard to say for sure. Each story is so obscure in its own little way. The animation, like I said, does look good in all three stories. That's the only thing that kept me engaged whatsoever. It just did nothing for me emotionally, and it didn't get my mind going about any big ideas. This will be available on Netflix on January the 14th. As you can guess, I'm not feeling it at all. And honestly, this is one of the rare films that I would say I don't really recommend. It's hard for me even to find someone that I would point out and say, yeah, this is going to be your cup of tea. I think that that's a very, very, very small demographic of people who may be interested in this. And I certainly was not. And now for the big one. Scream 2022. Because... I don't know what else to call it, you guys. That's its title. It stars Melissa Barrera, who you may know from starring in In the Heights earlier in 2021, Mason Gooding, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Marley Shelton, Dylan Minnette, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Sonia Benamar, Mickey Madison, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Nev Campbell, and Ghostface himself, Roger L. Jackson. It is directed by Matt Bettinelli, Open, and Tyler Gillette, who previously directed Ready or Not. And it is written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. What's it about? 25 years after a streak of brutal murders shocked the quiet town of Woodsboro, a new killer has donned the ghost face mask and begins targeting a group of teenagers to resurrect secrets from the town's deadly past. Basically the same thing that always happens. The only thing different here is the time period between the last event and this event. Okay. What did I like about the new screen? I'll tell you the set stage. I enjoy the franchise. I think all of the entries are a lot of fun. My personal ranking is one and two, almost like neck and neck. One edges out two for me because one is so iconic and because it was first and it did this new idea so perfectly. But I think that two is about as like pitch perfect of a sequel as you can have. They're both five stars in my book. Then we go from there to 4. I thought that 4 was a really neat way to come back to the franchise after a break. The specific twists and who the killer are in that one, I was really on board for completely and enjoyed the story. And then there's a bigger gap and there's 3, which it's fine. I like it because it's Scream, but it just doesn't work for me as well with two copies of every character. It gets really packed and kind of over messy in my opinion. And then just, it's trying so hard at its meta narrative to take stabs at Hollywood that even when it works, it's kind of just not that enjoyable to me. So that's my rankings. One, two, then four, then three. This one, as I'm going to refer to as Scream 5 from here on out, because it's just simpler. What did I like? I love the opening. The opening is always something that we look at in a Scream film and it's supposed to grab our attention ever since the first movie and the Drew Barrymore fake out. This one sort of recreates that and twists it up a little bit for the modern generation. It's great fun. It's a good callback. There's some really witty writing in it. And I thought it was fun. I mean, it's it's a good opening. It's not the best in the series, but it's far from the worst either. The Direction by Bertinelli Open and Gillette, I think, is really well done. Lots and lots of suspenseful buildup and fake-outs throughout the film. They always kept me on my toes. 
I really enjoyed the camera work throughout this, and there are some seriously bloody and gnarly kills from Ghostface. That is one thing that I think will universally be agreed upon by people who see the movie and those that like it and those that don't, is that the Ghostface killings in this take advantage of a modern sensibility. It's had a couple extra decades of experience to learn from, and you get some really well shot kills to the point where I had to look away a couple times. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. I think that the meta narrative here that they always have, it has to get modern. And I think they did a decent enough job of doing that. I honestly don't know what else you could have focused on and been much better and still been a scream movie. Many of the jokes and references got a lot of chuckles because they are using newer horror film references. So there are a lot of jokes about elevated horror. They are really taking on the sequel and remake culture that has sprung up, not just in Hollywood in general, but specifically within the horror genre and toxic fandom as well. These are the main kind of things that this movie is using as its baseline to poke fun at. And I think it's going to work for a lot of people. Wasn't my favorite thing. I think it is a bit of a retread, honestly. And I will say, even though I didn't love it narratively, it will slay on opening night in a crowded theater. So if you're feeling comfortable and safe in this time of Omicron and you're able to get out on like a midnight screening or whatever it is, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night for that first opening weekend, this movie is one that you're going to have a ton of communal laughter, and that is a powerful thing, especially in a horror movie like this. So the experience is going to be elevated by that, and I highly recommend that if you are so inclined to get out and do it. There is no post credit scene. Just a quick note there. I'm looking at it right now in my notes, and I wanted to make sure and point that out. I stayed just in case there was some sort of a teaser for another sequel, but there's nothing. Oh, my big highlight for performances is Mindy. She's one of the new kids in the, the teenager group. She's played by Jasmine Savoy Brown, who I just discovered today as I started watching a new series called Yellow Jackets. She's actually in that series as well, and that was a nice surprise. She stole every scene in Scream 5 for me. I think she's definitely the highlight. Other than Dewey. Dewey is the kind of returning cast highlight. She's the new cast highlight. And I thought that she adds enough of a fresh reinvention to her character. And then she has a monologue that is absolutely killer in true Scream fashion. The way that she delivers it, what she actually says, it's awesome. But she is a character that I think most people are going to come out of this talking about the most. Dislikes. I enjoyed mostly the whodunit of going through this movie, trying to figure out who the killer might be. But the problem is that that friends group that I was talking about of all new teenagers, Mindy is the only one that I cared about at all. The rest are very generic. They don't have interesting personalities. They're all extremely forgettable and caricatures of previous Scream friends. Even Mindy is, but... Hers is just memorable, and the rest of them are not. While I understand that fans really want that connection to continue by bringing back the old cast members and to kind of have everything sort of in some way either relate to Sydney or affect Sydney or tie back to Sydney, 
the old cast hampered this movie for me, honestly. I think that when they're in it, specifically Courtney Cox and Nev Campbell, that they shift the focus away from the new story and it becomes less enjoyable than I had hoped and than I than it was at the time. I would just be starting to get into the new cast and thinking that maybe they were going to really grab my attention and become something new and special to take this series forward. And then we would interrupt that by trying to focus it back onto Sydney and Gail. Narratively speaking, <laughs> listen, there are so many dumb things that happen in this movie and straight up plot holes. I typically let go of that stuff, but there's just so much. I guess it's par for the course, but this felt egregious. There's a scene in a hospital where the power gets shut off. And for some reason, the only person in the hospital is a victim or a potential victim, I should say, a patient, one patient, and a killer. Like, WTF. You're not even trying to make it realistic. You're just creating a set piece that works well for an attack scene or the staging of what you want to do in this particular moment. There's no realism. There's another moment where someone calls the cops and says, get there immediately. And like 15 minutes later, after things have happened and gone down, the cops still aren't there. And there's no reason. The house is like in the middle of the town. Like there's zero explanation for why there wouldn't be cops there within two, three minutes. But just because of story, they just, they can't be there because it wouldn't work because Ghostface is there, right? So I just, I did not ever feel like this movie was trying to be realistic and take into account any potential collateral damage at all. Everything works out absolutely pitch perfectly for Ghostface along the way, and that sort of annoyed me. One thing that you may or may not have a problem with is Ghostface's supernatural abilities. Personally, I'm okay with that. Ghostface has been known across the entire series that it doesn't really matter who's behind the mask, whether it be male, whether it be female, whether they be strong, whether they be weak. They exude an ability to kind of take bullets, take knife stabs, get thrown across a room, and they also have the power that they wouldn't normally if they were not wearing the mask and the costume. And I kind of have a mixed relationship with that. In this film, it really tested my patience, to be honest, because there are some things that happen and I wish I could tell you. I was just like, that is dumb and you just don't even address it. You just gloss over it like it's no big deal and you want us to just accept it because it's a horror movie and I don't work like that. But I'm trying to push that into my brain. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. Just accept that and you can enjoy it more. I was personally also let down by who the killer was. I did not find that reveal to be very interesting or memorable. I liked the whodunit, as I mentioned, up until that point. And then the ending kind of was blah for me. This is the thing. Narratively, it is just so much a horror movie about being a horror movie. It's getting old. I think that it's played out. And you can only go back to this well and repeat this so many times and have it work as well as it used to. This was good. It was a fun movie. It was interesting to see our old characters come back and interact, even if I didn't necessarily enjoy their performances. When they show up on screen for that first time, there's something about it. You just get an electricity inside of you. But this is nowhere near a great movie. And I think that pushing forward 
with this formula is going to do nothing but tarnish it. And I think we need to just stop where it's at and celebrate what exists now and put it to rest for 20, 30 years. It was an amazing thing what Scream does, but now every movie is trying to be self-referential and copy it. And so then when it does it to itself, listen, we've just seen this so many times. It doesn't become fun anymore. It becomes tiresome and repetitive and it just isn't that amazing unique mystery that that's what allowed Scream and its first few sequels to be so special is because they were able to play with things in a way they never had before this one doesn't do that even with the technology Scream 4 I was worried about this because Scream 4 uses some upgraded modern technology in it this one adds in things like find my phone tracking, which is kind of a cool little way to make a modern tech affect how Ghostface is able to track or not track or find you or not find you, whatever the case may be. So there's a couple things like that, but they're they're not at all majorly impactful to the story, in my opinion. And so it just becomes a retread overall. Anyway, I'll stop there. This will be in theaters on January the 14th, and I would recommend it. I say go to a theater, see it with a big crowd. If you're not going to do that, I think you should probably just wait until it comes to home and rent it. But that's about it. I don't think you should go into this expecting it to be a Scream 1, Scream 2 level. if Or whatever your favorite Scream is. I don't think you should expect it to be that. It wasn't for me, at least. Now, I may be an outlier, of course, as always. So... Feel free to check up with other reviews, but if you're like me, and if you usually align with my feelings, there you have it. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. As always, hopefully one of these will pique your interest, even if they're not necessarily going to be my favorites of the year, and I would always love to hear what you think. When you do end up seeing the movies that are talked about on this show, you can find me, as mentioned before, on Twitter at Film. You can also follow me on Letterboxd, where I write reviews for practically everything that I watch all week long, every single week of the year, at Aaron L. White. And a link to that profile, as well as everything else, like our Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. Those are in the show notes. We'd love to have you come join that. We'd love to have you follow us everywhere. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film. 